0: So we think about a new year, what will the next year bring? Maybe we would like, as some of the kids were asking, the kinds of things they were asking for, good things, things we could have, things that would go well, things that would be pleasant and enjoyable. We would like to go back to a previous series, we would like Job 42 without the problem of Job 1 and Job 2. We would like to get to that blessing, blessing that will be fully realized in our Lord's coming. That out with the old, in with the new, reminds us that, that uh, we are getting ready for something better. We are getting ready for his, his kingdom. We are getting ready for the fulfillment of that prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, in us, even as it is in heaven. And so as we think about a new year, we do think about, well, what comes next well, for us as believers and followers of Jesus, we, we would know that, well, our Lord's coming is the next big event. <clears throat> and there are things that surround that that would alert us to his coming, but there also can be on occasion some errors, some wrong thinking about our Lord's coming and about events on the earth that seem to be leading up to that. There's a lot of wild theories, a lot of uh, crazy things, uh, people pointing to one thing after another. This is it. And Jesus himself even warned his disciples about those things. The passage that I wanted us to to turn to this morning at the end of of a series, an Advent series, ready for his coming, is... In, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing to a church that he'd spent a short amount of time with, not a long time, but he'd told them some things about the Lord's return, and they have heard things since that are different from what Paul had told them. In the midst of significant troubles and persecution that they have been enduring, that are mentioned in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians and verse 4. Their faith in the midst of persecutions and afflictions that they are enduring, they have had some telling them that this is the day of the Lord. This is the end time. This is the final weeks or final months, maybe the final years. The Lord's return is right at hand. When, well, that's apparently not the case. There actually are some things that needed to happen first. And Paul, so Paul is giving them a, a reasoned explanation. First of all, about how to know. How to know when the Lord is coming. What are our expectations around the Lord's return? What do we expect then that the coming years as we wait for his return is going to be like, if that's what's ultimately going to happen? And then, what could we do? Paul closes the chapter with some words about how to be ready. And that, that captured my attention as we've been thinking about ready for his coming. How can we be ready as we anticipate the Lord's return? How do we lean into it? And so first of all, I want to track with, with the Thessalonians and where their thinking is that can align somewhat with some of our perceptions about the day that we live in as well, perhaps. And using that to point to then, how will we then live? What can we do to be ready more ready, perhaps, than we have been in the year before. So turn to 2 Thessalonians, please, and I'm going to read just the first, well, the first five verses as we first think about what are our expectations. Are our expectations clear? Are we settled in what we understand about our Lord's coming, first of all? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, or has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, first of all, Out of that last line, we get that Paul spent some time, when he didn't have a lot of time with this church, he had spent some time talking about end times. This is not, why are we spending on this? You know, people disagree. Nobody really understands what all those prophecies mean. It's not as important about other things related to what I should do. Well, actually, in a church that Paul was with, perhaps as little as three weeks Certainly no more than a couple of months, he had time to speak to them about the coming of our Lord and the things that would lead up to his return. Paul taught Christians about the Lord's return. In fact, the first letter to the Thessalonians, every chapter ends with a reference to the Lord's coming. So this is not something that Paul had skipped over because it wasn't as important as other things. Some of the other things we, we, we notice here is they have heard some, some incorrect, new but exciting, it captured their attention, teaching about the end times, that the day of the Lord, and what that phrase refers to, the day of the Lord is, a, is an encompassing phrase that can be referred to, used in Scripture to refer to individual events within the broader umbrella of all that the day of the Lord includes, which is his judgment and his kingdom. Sometimes a passage is referring to the day of the Lord, the day. Now we live in the day, the day of his kingdom. Sometimes it refers specifically to the judgments that precede the Lord's kingdom. But all of that together, the judgment and then his reign, all of that together is included in this phrase when you come across it in your Bible, the day of the Lord. But there's been some new teaching, and maybe it's been that they've spiritualized this coming. Well, the Lord's not physically coming. He has come in that the Lord, by the Spirit of God, indwells the church. So that is the Lord's coming to the earth. It's in the church. Well, no, he is physically, bodily coming just as we saw him, as the disciples saw him go. Well, maybe they're saying that they are now in, it seems, that in the midst of the very difficult times that these Christians are enduring, in the harsh persecution that they're facing because of their faith in Christ, that they're easily accepting somebody telling them that we are in the last days. The day of the Lord is already upon them. This this final seven years, and maybe they're already in the midst of it, the final seven years, the tribulation prior to Jesus' return. We're already there. That means his return is going to happen any day now. Maybe that's what they're being taught. This teaching is coming to them. When Paul says, whether by a spirit or by spoken word or by a letter that seems from us, the spirit could be referred to somebody giving what was understood to be a prophetic statement in the early church. Paul and John, the apostle, both refer to prophetic statements as the Spirit, the Spirit working in the church. It might be somebody teaching. It might be a a letter that has been disguised to look like it's from Paul because somebody's advancing their own agenda in Paul's name. But regardless of that, he tells them to test it Against what he has already told them. Later on in the same chapter, he's going to tell them to test things against that which he said and that which God has already recorded for us in his word. We always test what maybe God is telling us by what we know that God has already clearly said. That's always the test. We test these things about from God's word previously given. Now I have to confess that in the midst of the recent events of the last several months, ever since Israel was 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 invaded from the Gaza Strip by Hamas and those terrible events of October 7th and things that followed after that, and in, in uh, the Hezbollah up in Lebanon seem to be getting involved. Nobody knows what Syria is going to do, but there's something's coming from them. There that there, there are missiles being fired even from Yemen, and Iran is behind all of that. And I'm I'm of the personal opinion. Call it my own little private heresy if you like, but I'm of the personal opinion that the Antichrist in the end times is actually going to be an Islamic figure. I think that best fits Daniel's prophecies and others. And I think Iran is going to be a central part of that. I think even the divisions between Shia and Sunni fit the description that Daniel gives. And I think it's very interesting that Iran's, Iran is dominated today by a leadership that is looking for the return of whom they call the 12th Imam, or the hidden Mahdi. The Mahdi, the 12th Imam, the 12th ruler from, from, from Muhammad in the Shi'i tradition, was hidden sometime in the 900s. But he's going to reappear, but there's certain things that his followers need to do to bring about his return. Think of this as the Islamic Messiah type figure. He's going to be the deliverer and he's going to bring in a reign of righteousness under Islam over the whole world. That's what the Iranian leadership is expecting. That's what predominantly is looked to in Shia Islam. And they believe that they need to eliminate Israel to recover the, all the land of Israel for Islam, for the, to repair, prepare the way for the Mahdi's arrival. They believe that bringing about a chaotic world situation is just the environment the Mahdi needs in order to bring calm and order from that chaos. That, that's scary in its own thought because Iranians have no... Concerns then, it fits through theology to bring chaos. And for a potential world, for a country with potentially nuclear abilities, that's a scary proposition. But life on earth, apart from the Lord, is a scary proposition. It is not something that we can manage on our own, this mess that humanity makes. We do look for the Lord's coming, and there is a definitive indicator of those last days, and that is the revealing of the Antichrist. That's what, that's what Paul says in verse 3, that these days will not come. I turned over to chapter 1. The, the day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, and on it goes to describe him that the Antichrist will be revealed within those last days, within the seven-year period. And there's various events that will come to that, the different passages that we won't take all the time. But let me give a couple of highlights. As this passage says, he will be lawless. He will disregard God's word. He will disregard God's law. He will declare himself to be God. He will seat himself in the temple and declare himself that he is God in the flesh to be worshipped as God. This is what Antiochus Epiphanes did, the, the, the Greek ruler from, from Syria and Turkey that invaded in, the, in, the, in what was called the, what we think of as the Maccabean period and, and was later expelled by some rural Jewish rebels that um, were able to expel him. But he, he had installed a statue of the Greek god Zeus within the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And his statue of Zeus remarkably resembled Antiochus because Antiochus believed himself to be the epiphany, the appearance of Zeus in the flesh. His his statue was expelled, Um, the the temple was purified, and so on. But later on, during the Roman era, just, just seven years after the crucifixion of Christ, the emperor Caligula ordered that a statue of himself shall be installed in the temple and the Jews forced to worship him as God. He, A, wanted to be worshipped as God, and B, he was tired of the Jews and their sensitivities and their special privileges of avoiding emperor worship. And so he gives the order, and this is about, for those of you that are curious about these things, three and a half years into his reign. And then, before it can be carried out, because the Syrian general, Roman general, in charge of moving this statue and setting it in the temple He slow walks this whole process. He does not want to do this. He knows this is going to be a bloodbath. And it ends up not happening because the emperor is assassinated by his own senior leadership prior to the statue being installed. It's as if God continues to say over and over, this far, but no further. God is in charge. God is restraining. God is holding things back for his own purpose and his own timing. Did you notice as well, in the midst of all this this discussion about the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple of God, presupposes that there is a temple of God. That there is a temple of the God in Jerusalem, apparently, available for this to happen in. There's certainly a readiness in Israel for that. There is, in fact, all the preparations. They even have their red heifer. And some of you don't even know what the red heifer is for. It has to do with the purifications that are necessary for a new temple or new temple artifacts. They have been lining things up for years in anticipation of that. What would it take for some agreement? There's even, actually, I've, I've learned to uh, learn more recently about some of the recent moves to offer another idea about the location of the temple that could make for an agreement, a covenant between a new, I think, Islamic ruler, because that's who controls the Temple Mount, and Israel about the rebuilding of their temple. Only so as they rebuild it, he can halt their sacrifices and stand there himself. It's an interesting setting of the stage, but I've got to be careful myself as I see world events not to get ahead of things. Because we are also told here that God is restraining. World events are subject to God's restraint. Look at verse 6. And you know that what is restraining him Now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, mysteriously in hidden ways. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Verses six and seven tell us that the Holy Spirit is restraining until his time. Then he who alone restrains will be will be moved out of or moves out of the way. In the Greek, it's a middle voice, it's, it's action one takes concerning themselves. So the Spirit is going to move out of the way and allow these things to go forward. That's my understanding of what Paul's saying there. He who restrains moves out of the way. Then the things can continue out in the open. That which is progressing now in hidden ways, underground, kind of like those Hamas tunnels, will all of a sudden emerge out in the open, in horrible ways, to horrible effect. But note that that lawlessness is presently hidden, although it doesn't mean it's not working. It's already at work. John the Apostle in 1 John tells us that there are many Antichrists in the world, that the spirit of Antichrist is working in the world. This, this um, that will ultimately express itself when one man as the, as the Antichrist says, I am God, worship me. I am the one who is absolutely in charge. There's an echo of that in the fallenness of each one of us, that I will be in charge of at least me. And there's something in humanity that wants to dominate others as well, but at least I will be in charge of me. It's the lie that we have followed ever since the Garden of Eden, that God is withholding things. We should take matters into our own hands. We should make our own decisions instead of do what God says and walk according to the ways that I want to walk. What what seems good to me in my own eyes. That's been the, the, um, the temptation for humanity ever since. And that, that is a spirit that's already at work and will continue in these coming years. What do you expect the coming years to be like? Well, we would like for the Job 42 kind of peace and prosperity and rest, but there's trouble to come before we get there. Just as Job 1 and 2 precede chapter 42, so also there is trouble to come for us prior to that day. Now, I should, I should give a qualification here. It's easy for us in our tradition as a church, um, having been taught a lot about a pre-trib rapture of the church, to have the perspective that by the time Antichrist shows up and is openly revealed, we are going to be out of here. We are going to be gone. We will, the church will have been caught up and raptured away. We will escape it. We've got nothing to worry about. Well, now I want to say first of all that that's the tradition that I grew up in. That's the Bible school that I graduated from. That's the seminary. Taught very clearly and solidly that position that I got my master's degree from. That's also the position of the seminary that I got my doctorate from. So I I understand well this tradition that our church has grown up in. But I want to say this that hope. That confidence of a pre-trib rapture has not always served the church well. It easily leads us to a kind of escapism where we give no thought to the difficulties of the future and how we will stand in faith in them because, beam me up Scotty, there's no intelligent life down here and we like the left behind series expect that life is just going to carry on pretty good things are fine going all right until suddenly the rapture comes and we're all out, out of here and then all hell breaks loose on earth but the experience of the church around the world and through history is far different than that the experience of the normal experience of the church through history in most of the world is in fact persecution for their faith in Christ. If they dare to identify themselves openly as followers of Jesus, they're going to pay a price for it. There's going to be privileges lost. There's going to be persecution suffered. There's going to be opposition that they face. And that's not just here and there. That's normal. Our experience in the West and particularly in America has been the abnormal experience and it's changing. And so I don't know where you are in terms of your view of the tribulation, but I would say this. Pray for pre-trib, but prepare for post-trib, because I am convinced that of this, there will be trouble, and we will have ours too. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have tasted of that in various ways. But there will be trouble and opposition that we're going to face. And what I expect of the coming year or years is increasing trouble and opposition that the church of Jesus will face. And those who sincerely and faithfully want to follow him are going to get some pushback. You're going to have people in your face. You're going to have people talking about you behind your back. You're going to pay a price for it. You're going to be singled out. You're going to be rumored about. There will be a price to pay if you intend. If your faith is any more than something you hold privately in your own head, if you dare to speak it and if you dare to live by it, it's going to cost you something. We need to be ready for that. That's what we should expect in the coming years. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work. It is hidden, it's underground, it's running through those Hamas tunnels, but it's already active. And we shouldn't think otherwise. The coming lawlessness one, uh, the coming lawless one, verse nine, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion. At the right time, the restrainer pulls back. God will allow this delusion to emerge so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Antichrist is going to be revealed and his, his, his coming, his emerging is described in several passages that I gave you in your bulletin notes. We're not going to walk through all of those because of the time that's already gone this morning and I haven't even gotten to where I, want, I need to get this morning. So those references are in there. If you want to read more about that in context, there, there, there are those for you later. But people are going to follow him. They will follow him, but they will follow him not because of a failure of the gospel or a failure of the church as Jesus' witness. That is not why they end up following Antichrist himself. Paul says it clearly here. They follow him because they have refused God's truth. It's just like in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18. Well, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to all the world. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed out of faith into faith. The just will live by faith. For the unrighteousness of, God, of man is already evident. Now we get to Romans 1.18. And they knew the truth of God, but they suppressed, they held down that truth in unrighteousness. Light has come into the world, but men, humanity, loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's what Paul says here. They had pleasure in their unrighteousness, so God allows them to run with it. As Romans 1 says, God gave them over to that which they desired. We long for Jesus' coming, and we long for all that is wrong to be made right. And we're going to see more of that in the coming year, I think. We need to be ready for it. When we are longing for all that is wrong to be made right, we are also longing for our Lord to come and to judge the wrong. That's part of the package. The way that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven is for him to rule with a rod of iron, for him to judge unrighteousness and put it down before he does so, before that comes, the wrong will get worse. The evil will be manifest. It will be obvious that there is no alternative for humanity's rebellious rejection of God's forgiveness. There's no alternative of their rebellious rejection of God's truth and forgiveness except for God to judge. That's the only thing that's left. That's a terrible time that's coming. But how... Are we too? How do we prepare for an increasingly difficult time? How do we prepare as things go from bad to worse? Do we run to a red state? Relocate? How specifically should we live new in this new year as those new in Christ? That's why I talked to the kids briefly about. We, we have a new year to live new. Out with the old, in with the new. Well, that's fine for the year, but what about in Christ? What does that look like for us? I want you to take that phrase If you hear it later on today when you're with somebody, you hear it tomorrow, you hear it the day after that. If you hear somebody say, out with the old, in with the new, I'd love you to take that opportunity to say, you know, I heard something about that phrase. That actually speaks to this new life that God has given us in Christ. That that we're to, I'm I'm able now in Christ to put aside things that are the old, that don't fit anymore. Just like last year's dated checks. And I'm able to, to put on the new. That which fits with his future. What does out with the old, in with the new look like for me? Look like for you? What should I do? What can I be doing to be ready? That's the whole thrust of the series, right? To be ready for his coming. What will that look like for you and for me? Look at verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God, for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I shouldn't say here, before, even before we keep reading, that there's five specific things I think we can get from Paul's closing paragraph here in this chapter. There's five specific things that we can do that will help us in being ready for His coming. Five specific responses in the midst of a world going from bad to worse where we can expect trouble and opposition and difficulties and adversity. And that is, first of all, to give thanks. Secondly, to build up those around us. To stand firm in the truth of the gospel. To practice godliness. And to trust Jesus. So those are the things I want you to look for. Those are the things I want to talk about in these last few minutes out of verses 13 to 17. We always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. There's the standard. Apostolic teaching and the word of God through them. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace May our Lord and may God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Okay, let me go back to those five things. First of all, Paul gives thanks. He gives thanks for them. He gives thanks for people. He gives thanks for those who are believing in Jesus around him. He gives thanks for those who are continuing to carry on in their faith in the midst of opposition, and I want to ask this. In the midst of your prayers for yourself and for one another, who have you given thanks for lately? It's one of the things I keep bumping into as I'm reading through Scripture In Paul giving thanks for others. He gives thanks for them. Our faith is too often individualized and self-concerned. We're concerned with our own troubles. We're even concerned to give thanks for our own praises, for our own circumstances and situations. But following Jesus is specifically others-centered. Do you know why? Because Jesus is specifically and intentionally others-centered. And so in our giving of thanks, don't neglect to give thanks. And I, I found this to be true. Praying for others changes my attitude, my aspect, my, relational, my relationship with them. It changes my outlook towards people when I am praying for them, when I am giving thanks for them. Who have you given thanks for lately. Start simply in preparing for his coming, preparing for this next year. Start real simply. Give thanks. Give thanks to God for them. Paul models in the midst of this giving of thanks, he models something very important. In giving thanks, he builds them up in their faith. Did you notice, even when Paul gives thanks for them, he starts talking a whole lot more about what God has done for them than what they've done. He's not giving thanks necessarily for all that they do. He's giving thanks to them because of what God has done for them, and he reminds them of it. He reminds them, he reminds you, you are loved by God. That God chose you in Christ. God called you to himself by the active, intentional working of his spirit. God has done this. God has moved you to him. He called you not just to save you from judgment, to give you a home in heaven. God God called you in order to lift you, to honor, to, to share with you the glory of his Son. That he has determined to make us heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. You who were far off have been brought near, very near. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. God has honored you. God has lifted you. God has exalted you. And then he encourages them. He encourages them to live out their faith. But notice that living out their faith is based on what God has done for them, Living in faith is based on our faith, that which we can believe in and rest knowing it's true. I've said it before, I'll say it again. God, uh, moral commands always stand on gospel truth. Moral imperatives always stand on gospel indicatives. What we do in the Christian life is always a response out of God in Christ having given us life. One who is dead in and trespasses and sin can do nothing. But God has made you alive in Christ, and now we can live. Therefore, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, after 11 chapters of all that God has done for us, he said, Therefore, I beg you, I urge you, beloved brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The mercies of God, the gospel truth, to present your bodies is the moral command. What we would do, how we would then live, is always based on what God has done for us in giving us life. And he, he tells them, in hardships, stand firm in the truth of the gospel by which God has called us. Stand firm, he says. Continue. Dig into your faith. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. That's why we have classes starting again. January 14th. That's why we're going to spend time digging into books like in the Old Testament, the minor prophets addressed in an era in Israel where people had moved on from God. That whole Yahweh thing, that is so 1400s BC. Does anybody believe that anymore in the 800s, the 700s, the 600s? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. And they need to stand in that truth. The book of Hebrews is also being taught, starting January 14th, the book of Hebrews at a time when people are being pressed to abandon and return to the religious observance of the day, a harmless religion that nobody objects to instead of this radical new faith and following of Jesus. And the book is intended to strengthen them to continue. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And he says, hold to the traditions. Now, some of your Bibles will translate that that statement, hold to the teachings, as in the handed down traditions of truth that you were given. But normally, that's a different word that's used for that, the doctrines that you were given. This word seems to be used throughout, throughout the New Testament as the practices of godly living. The traditions are how we live out our faith. What shall I then do? In 1 Corinthians 11, it's how the church practices practices their worship of God together, the traditions that Paul had given them. In the Gospels, it refers over and over again to the ways the Jews practice their faith, the things they do. Often it's negative. It's the tradition of the elders It's the traditions of men rather than the commandments of God. But it is still referring to their practice, the things that they do. And Paul has given to the church. One exhortation after another about the things that we also should do because of the gospel. And he says, not only stand firm in the truth, but hold to the traditions. Continue to practice, continue to model what you believe by what you do. Continue to be different. Let me give you one more example that the traditions means that. Look down in verse 6 of chapter 3. The next chapter here in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3 in verse 6, he says, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions you receive from us. You see that? He's talking about what we do out of what we believe he is not Paul is not Paul is, Paul is not one to give a religion that's based on what you do no but this faith that we have in Christ has its call upon our lives out with the old in with the new. Hold to the traditions continue to be different in ways God God's word calls you to, even if it makes you a target. And lastly, though we are to stand firm, we're to hold on, we don't do it on our own. We trust Jesus, we trust our Father to both comfort or encourage us, and also to enable us to stand in every good work, traditions, and word the truth it's hard to be different it's hard to continue it's hard to hold fast to stand firm when the current seems ever stronger against you and it will be so easy just to go along but he has given us life and he has caused us to be lights in the midst of darkness this is a short-term privilege that we have been given to walk by faith in a contrary world, and as James says, by so doing, in, with through the gospel, by the power of his spirit, to snatch even others right out of the fire. There is judgment coming upon a rebellious world, upon a rebellious humanity. But God loves, and he now loves through us, And so we stand firm. So we hold on. But that in trusting Jesus, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us comfort and hope through grace, comfort, encourage our hearts and establish them, strengthen them, cause us to stand in every good work and every good word. I'm really cautious about New Year's traditions, or rather New Year's resolutions, in the sense that they're often made on the basis of my own effort. But oh, let us pray. Father, would we be all the more different? According to your gospel, according to the life that you have given us in Jesus, Lord, according to the strengthening of your spirit, according to your encouraging, even provoking us to love and good deeds, Lord, cause us to be different in the new year, not merely in the ways that we might choose, but cause us to be different in the ways that you would call us to. Lord, give us the strength, the enabling in your grace to yield our will to your will, to walk with you in your ways, that you might use us as your light in the midst of darkness, as the voice and even the demonstration, the observable reality of the power of the gospel for the sake of others. O oh, Lord. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done, but let it first be. Lord, let it be in preparation. Your will be done in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.